From Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors, this is The Legal Lounge. Here's your host, Amanda Jones. Hello and welcome to Season 2 of The Legal Lounge, where we've got some great content planned for you. If you haven't heard the shows in the first season yet, they're definitely worth checking out. You'll get an insight into many aspects of law in England and Wales, including divorce, mental capacity and claims for different kinds of injury. You can listen to these shows on your podcast app or by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. In this episode, family law solicitors Philippa Pearson and Stacey Robinson answer that all important question. How much can you expect to receive on a divorce? I'm Philippa and I specialise in doing financial and children cases arising out of divorce and separating couples. I'm Stacey Robinson, I work closely with Philippa and I too deal with financial matters and also complex children matters. We act for lots of clients, don't we Stacey? People from all walks of life really, from low income families to those with a, with a bit more right up to those with huge farms or, or big complex companies. So cases that involve um, businesses, cases that involve farms, and we have to have a working knowledge of all the different types of area of law. Yeah, I think people don't realise that family law encompasses so much, doesn't it? It's tax law, it's land law, it's trust law, it's, it's partnerships, companies, all sorts of things. We've got to be able to have a working knowledge and be able to deal with all of those aspects but fortunately we've got lots of support with our specialist teams in the firm as well that help us but the question today that everybody wants us to answer is how much can they expect to receive on divorce asking that question is asking how long is a piece of string it's all very <laughs> dependent it is stacy but that might not be the most helpful answer i suppose question is is really saying Um, How does the court approach all of this? What I would want everyone to know is that the guiding principle in in any um, divorce case is fairness. Fairness, yes, but that doesn't always mean equality, does it? No, it doesn't. It depends on the factors that are set out in the statute that deals with family law, isn't it? So the court will look at such things as income, for instance. How much income has each party got? That's their income from all sources. You've got what their employment income will be, Mm -hmm. you will get um, income that they may receive from benefits, income that they receive um, from dividends of companies, uh, but also uh, income they receive from the other party, such as child maintenance for example. It all gets taken into account, but it's not just income they've actually got. The court will also look at income that the court thinks it would be reasonable to expect that person to have. So sometimes the court will expect one of them to, to go out and, and find some work, obviously work that would fit in with the family and work that is reasonable for them to expect to do. And it will look at whether they could perhaps even look for an increase in wages sometimes as well. And that can come as well by considering a party retraining. So maybe a mother that's been out of work caring for children, giving her the opportunity to retrain and increase her income by that way as well. Absolutely. And in those cases, sometimes the court will even say that the person has to have a lump sum of money in order to help them to retrain. But all of this is not only important for the income that comes in, it's also really important for their mortgage capacities and what sort of mortgage capacity they can get. Well, that's important because what the court is looking at is moving forward out of this relationship. How is each party going to be able to afford to live and what sort of properties, for example, they're going to be expected to live in? Yeah, and that, of course, fits in with the standard of living that they've enjoyed during the marriage. I mean, 
it's very rare that you have a couple who had a standard of living in the marriage that they can then go on and continue to enjoy after the marriage because that pot that provided for one household is obviously going to be quite stretched when it has to provide for two. But the standard of living that they did enjoy during the marriage is still very relevant. I mean, they're not going to expect a couple who've been used to living in a lovely five-bedroom property with a big garden with one of them suddenly ending up in a in a tent or a one-bedroom flat, are they? The court looks at achieving a standard of living for both of them, which isn't completely out of kilter with what they've had and enjoyed when they were together. And something that's still manageable on the income that is given by both parties. And the other thing, of course, that the court takes into account, or one of the other things, is the duration of the marriage. When you're looking at duration, obviously you're looking at the time, you know, from the date of the marriage, the date that the parties entered into either a marriage or a civil partnership. But also it it does take into consideration a period of cohabitation prior to the marriage. If you lived with someone prior to the marriage and in the court's words that moved seamlessly into the marriage, that entire period of cohabitation is counted as being part of the marriage. And the longer the marriage is the higher a financial claim by a claiming spouse can be. But it is very important to distinguish that the factors we're talking about today, they do only apply when a couple have entered into that marriage or civil partnership. Cohabitation, that's dealt with completely separately. Yes, I'm afraid that's going to have to be another podcast, Stacey. Uh, (laughs) Cohabitation is completely different. So we are only talking about marriage and civil partnerships here. There's no such thing as that common law marriage is there anymore. No, not in England and Wales, no. The age of the parties is important though as well. I've noticed that particularly when the parties are closer to retirement, the more notice the court takes of the amount of uh, pension provision there is and making sure that each of them are going to have sufficient funds for old age. Well that ties back into the income we were talking about earlier. A party that's reaching retirement age, their income isn't reasonably expected to increase much further. And then, of course, the court looks at contributions as well, the contributions that each of them have made towards the marriage. I think some people worry that the person who has earned the most, i.e. the breadwinner, is going to necessarily end up with more money than the person who has stayed at home and kept the family going and, and feathered the nest. But that isn't necessarily the case, is it? It's not the case. Contribution in that respect is usually deemed by the court as being equal contributions because if there was one party staying at home caring for the children well they've contributed by not having to contribute to childcare costs for example. Absolutely. No gender discrimination in the family courts but some contributions are taken into account. For instance inheritance particularly inheritance that has a generational aspect to it. For instance, if you've got a family company that's been in a family for generations, the court will not want to uh, break up that particular asset if it can, and farms as well. Yes, farms are quite considered in terms of the contribution aspect because you've got a farm that could be fourth generational. Well, that's not something potentially that could be split and shared between the parties. So the court will actually look at those contributions in a a very different light. That sort of ties back as well to the duration of the marriage in terms of contributions, duration. It does, it does. The longer the marriage, the less these contributions matter. But the shorter the marriage, the more they matter. And then there's conduct. I find 
quite often that couples I think that conduct is going to be taken into account for instance if somebody's had an affair but very rarely is, is conduct taken into account I find unless as the courts say it is so gross or so inequitable which it means you know really unfair that it has to be taken into account. If it has an impact on the finances something one party has done has impacted the finances that's really where it's relevant but general behaviour the fact that someone has had an affair you know it's not always taken into consideration it's it's not deemed relevant enough to to go into by the court but it will be if for instance somebody is trying to hide money that's often construed as being conduct and that can uh, can certainly have an adverse effect for for somebody trying to hide money on any settlement and then there's that sweep up clause at the end isn't there yeah the catch-all all in the circumstance yes uh, uh, all the circumstances all the circumstances of the case that the court can take into account which just means that family law is so very very discretionary isn't it it takes any unusual factor that the courts might see in a case or in your in your marriage in your family anything that's unusual that's where it is caught in which is why it's really it's only specialist family lawyers that can give an indication as to where a family settlement is likely to lie at a divorce isn't it what does this mean in practice that's what you want to know you know how does this application work what sort of families are we looking at here well let's look at the sort of clients we have we've got people who've got families with children Well, there, the first priority is always going to be the children's needs. The court are going to ensure that the needs are primarily met of the children. It doesn't mean ignoring the other party's needs, but the first consideration there will have to be housing the children. And when it comes to looking at children, it might be that there are some orders made by the court that wouldn't happen in other circumstances. So, for example, there is a notion called a measure order, where one party retains the property and the other party has an interest in that property but gets their sum out later on in life. It's that the guiding principle is still fairness. And so even if in those rare cases there isn't enough money to go around, the the party that has to give up the use of the equity in the family home, as it were, for a while, gets it back at the end of the day when the children are grown up and have started to leave home. And then there's those people who've got short marriages with no children. Those cases, usually contribution's the key. And the contributions, how much each person actually brought into the marriage is what the court looks at. And often the court puts them in a a situation whereby they can walk away with a settlement that means that their needs are met, but with um, a huge reflection on what they actually brought into the marriage. And when we're looking at short marriages here, kind of looking less than five years yes certainly and then there's long marriages long marriages with children that are grown up or perhaps even long marriages where there have never been any children well in a case like that you you, starting point there is a 50 50 split it is it is starting point is 50 50 and there would probably be a divergence if there was um, a huge contribution by by one party as we've discussed One part that we usually get through is the arguments about pre- and post-marital assets. Oh yes, the the court um, spend a lot of time talking about pre- and post-marital assets these days. Those are the assets that one party has either earned or gained, either before the marriage started, that would be pre-cohabitation, or once they've actually separated. The court will, if it can, leave those pre- and post-marital assets with the party to whom they belong, unless, of course, 
the needs of the other spouse as such that they need them in order to accommodate themselves in suitable places. So when a client first comes in, what they need to know is how financial cases approached from the outset. We're members of Resolution, so we're very family focused. Um, and that means that we're committed to their code of practice. And the whole ethos of this is to promote a constructive approach to family issues that considers the needs of our clients, but also the needs of the whole family. And that's particularly important when we're dealing with children in the family and how the financial position is going to work for those parties, taking into consideration the, the needs of these growing children. But it doesn't mean to say we're a pushover. We still have faith in the court process. And we can still be extremely firm when we have to be. But it does mean that we look after our clients and our client focus first. Well, we recognise that what we do has a huge impact, not only on the couple, but also as the family and the wider family as a whole. And that brings about it a huge level of responsibility. There are different ways of resolving um, financial settlements as well. And we don't just go running off to court. We'll consider with everybody whether mediation might be appropriate. Well, Gemma and Caroline did a podcast recently on that. And collaborative law, of course. And Lisa spoke to Adele Ballantyne. She's done a podcast too on collaborative law. But in our day-to-day practice, what we both do, I think, is we spend a lot of our time negotiating, don't we? We speak to the solicitors on the other side representing the parties. I mean, that about it itself can come about different ways. You can deal with written correspondence, telephone communication. It might even be suggested, if appropriate, a roundtable meeting. Oh, yeah, I have a lot of those, actually. And quite often they're, they're very successful, even if not wholly successful, certainly in narrowing the issues that there are between the parties. Although, sadly, Sometimes you do have to go to court. It's still very rare we have fully contested proceedings that proceed all the way to a final hearing though, isn't it? People usually settle at that second court appointment, which is called a financial dispute resolution appointment, which takes place about six months into the whole proceedings. So the way it starts is the application is issued. Uh, They then have a first hearing, the FDA. That's all about directions. You're not going to be asked to give any witness evidence at that stage. No, the court just simply gives directions or short orders, I suppose, um, about what evidence is required in order that by the time you get to that second hearing, the financial dispute resolution appointment, there is enough information there for the judge working with the lawyers and the clients to try and help everybody to reach an agreement. And at that point, we'll have any expert evidence such as pension reports, values of properties, values of business, anything else we need and identified that we need to be able to put this matter to a final settlement. Absolutely. It's all there in front of the judge. I think sometimes people get very worried that it means that they're going to end up in the witness box, but that's that's not the case at all. People end up in the witness box only at a final hearing and the percentage of people that go to final hearings is relatively low. That's what the FDR is there for. It's sat there on the day. Many of them take place remotely nowadays as well. So you can be sat with your solicitor in the office. You could be sat at home if you so wish. And then you have that opportunity throughout the day to speak about your case, go back and forth with negotiations, get an indication from the judge as to how they believe the matter could be dealt with. But primarily the focus there is coming to a resolution between the parties. And most people walk away with a consent order that's fully enforceable at the end of that second court appointment. Enforceable, in fact, as enforceable as if they'd spent five days in the High Court battling it out. That's what the parties are after at the end of this, is that financial order. 
because that's the document that's enforceable. And as we stated there, you can do it by consent, either within court proceedings or out of court proceedings at any time once an agreement's been reached. As long as the divorce proceedings are at the appropriate stage, a financial consent order can be submitted. And the wonderful thing about those court orders, of course, as well, is that more often than not, they bring about an absolute clean break. So that's it. Nobody can ever come back again. The finances are completely sorted. We've talked about getting to court if it's required, getting to that stage. So what is it we're after at the very beginning? To start it all off, well, I'd say to a client that the the best way to begin is that when you make that appointment for your, your very first meeting with your lawyer, bring with you or send in beforehand by email a schedule just giving an idea of what yours and your spouse's respective assets are, everything you own, everything that you owe, i.e. your liabilities, and what you think your income is. When talking about the assets, we're talking about things such as values of property, and then the liability of that would be the associated mortgage, any vehicles that may be there, and then any finance associated with that. Absolutely, and don't forget pensions because pensions are really important, especially as you get older and can often be as valuable as the family home. That's what we always say to our clients is to get at the first instance because sometimes they can take a little time to to be provided by the pension companies. So we always get them to obtain that cash equivalent transfer value as soon as they can. So then once you've done that, you come in to see your, your lawyer and we can usually unless the case is incredibly complex or you haven't got a clue what it is your, your spouse has got, we can usually give a pretty good idea at that very first appointment of what type of settlement you can expect to get. And I think we take into consideration what it is the clients want as well and then saw them whether or not it's something that can be possible. It's becoming increasingly the case that it's not always the way that the women are the one that care for the children and it's the man then that goes out to work. And when it cut that translates into a financial settlement, it means that the children aren't going to primarily be based with their mother and spend time with their father. There can be a more of a shared care arrangement between the two. Oh, absolutely. I find that shared care arrangements are um, almost the norm now, in fact, which of course has a real impact again on where the court gives the assets because the court hates to see one parent having a better house than the other. It likes to see them both in the same standard of accommodation because that's what's good for the children. And that way the needs are being met of both families, going from one family household to two family households. Thanks to Philippa and Stacey for lending their expertise. More proof that lawyers don't bite. If you need legal help from either of them, please get in touch through the website. If you'd like to catch up with the episodes of The Legal Lounge that Stacey and Philip have referred to, you can find the links within the description to this episode. Thank you for taking the time to listen. If you found the conversations helpful, please remember to follow, review and share the episodes. Speak to you soon. That was The Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors. Visit lblaw.co.uk slash podcast for helpful resources. And please do follow or subscribe on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.